0: Welcome to ReachMD. This special edition of The Pulse of Emergency Medicine is sponsored by Eagle Pharmaceuticals. The following activity is intended for physicians. Here's your host, Dr. John Russell. Exertional heat stroke, or EHS, is a sudden and unpredictable condition which commonly affects young, active, and healthy individuals. But this common patient population doesn't tell the whole story of EHS and who is at risk, which makes the need to understand both typical and atypical case presentations all the more necessary. This is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. John Russell. Joining me today are Drs. James Glazer and Dr. Lou Guzzi. Dr. Glazer is the medical director of the Outpatient Physical Therapy and Sports Medicine Program at Memorial Hospital in North Conway, Maine. He's also an assistant clinical professor at Tufts University School of Medicine and is a physician for the United States ski team. Dr. Guzzi is a quadruple board-certified physician in critical care, anesthesiology, internal medicine, and neocritical care. He practices at Florida Hospital Medical Group in Orlando. Doctors, welcome to the program. Dr. Glazer, let's start with the typical exertional heat stroke patient you see in sports medicine. Is there such a thing as a textbook case? And if so, what does it look like?
1: Well, in most cases, we see somebody who has been exerting themselves. And in my area, that's typically an athlete, though we're seeing a rise in heat stroke cases among warfighters as well as among certain tradespeople and especially firefighters who exert in very hot environments with restrictive clothing. But typically, you see this textbook combination of central nervous system effect in terms of uh, sometimes an altered mental status or altered level of consciousness even, and that's typically combined with a very high temperature.
0: So how do you go about diagnosing that on the field or in the ER? How would you go about diagnosing and then starting initial
1: management? Well, the most crucial step really is early recognition. And to recognize these symptoms early, you have to have a high index of suspicion when you have people exerting under heat stress. The other crucial step is to get an accurate temperature. And it turns out that this is not as easy as it might sound because, especially at the extremes of temperature, most of our temperature measuring devices are very inaccurate. So, for example, oral temperature, tympanic temperature, sometimes infrared temperatures are very inaccurate. And really, the standard of care in these cases is an esophageal temperature or a rectal probe.
0: So, Dr. Guzzi, in critical care spectrum, this exertional heat stroke patient, how do they present in a critical care setting and what are you doing for these patients?
2: So quite often, we're the folks who get the patients after Dr. Glazer's seen them, diagnosed them, probably actually initiated therapy, may have initiated a passive or an active cooling process, can probably even send off all the labs. But most of these patients have a protracted course where they're going to be in the ICU for an extended period of time, maybe one day, two days, up to three days in some patients that are very ill or complicated. Oftentimes, we get them after therapy has been instituted, we continue with resuscitation, we continue following electrolytes very closely, we watch them for a recurrence of EHS, it's not unheard of to see somebody have a recurrence of EHS where they're doing well, and then all of a sudden, for want of a better word, start to cook again or start to actually get an elevated temperature again, elevated CPKs again, elevated muscle contracture and discomfort and pain And we're the guys that after all that's said and done and we resuscitate and fix, we're the guys that start instituting physical therapy, occupational therapy. Oftentimes, we engage them in some sort of neurocognitive testing because it's not uncommon that these patients have a neurocognitive deficit or some other long-term treatment issue. So it's very important that the ER, which we are very attuned to working with, and critical care work together as one because oftentimes Dr. Glazer will have this patient for a period of time and depending on his busyness in the day, they may be very rapidly in our hands or vice versa, we may be full and it may take some time. So it's really a joint treatment management for both of us to kind of control and manage this patient. So I imagine in this large
0: spectrum of heat stroke, there are modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. Dr. Glazer, can you start some of the things that you're thinking about for risk factors? And then I'll go to Dr. Ghazi.
1: Absolutely. One of the most important things that we seek to modify is level of acclimatization. It turns out our bodies are very well designed to shed heat stress, but what that takes is at least three or four days under heat stress in order to acclimatize. So what we try to advise athletes to do, especially if they're going to be traveling someplace that is different climactically than where they're residing normally. We try to get them there early and into acclimatization. Other modifiable risk factors include dehydration. And so hydration during exercise is very important. Obviously, equipment modification is a big deal. And we really try to work with our communities and our race sponsors to make sure that there's adequate hydration and that there's also adequate awareness of the risk of heat stroke so that if a race is going to be taking place under hot climactic conditions, we consider changing the start time or even in some cases canceling the race.
0: Dr. Ghazi, what are some of the things that you're seeing in your patient population?
2: Well, in the patient population, again, it's not just anybody who lives in the South in warm areas. I obviously live in Florida, but you can see it anywhere because heat can occur anywhere, the environment of heat can occur anywhere, even being in a stuffy building can occur anywhere. So to kind of reiterate what Dr. Glazer said, it's absolutely essential that people have the opportunity to acclimatize to where they're at, both athletes, people working, people outside in hot environments, whether you're cutting your grass, whatever you're doing, it's very important that you acclimate to where you're actually at. Hydration, I just cannot say it enough. Seeing enough heat stroke patients It always seems to be the trigger starts when they just can't dissipate their heat. And perfusion allows you to dissipate your heat. The more dehydrated you get, the more constricted you get, the more you shunt your blood, the more you have less opportunity to actually dissipate your heat. We are incredible animals at dissipating heat, but the reality is it requires that we actually have appropriate volume on board. So a dehydrated patient, interestingly enough, as we all know, alcohol and teas are profoundly dehydrating in terms of the diuretic effect. So somebody who's drinking on a hot day thinks they're refreshing themselves with a cold beer when in reality are becoming even more dehydrated and then go ahead and move into some sort of heavy physical activity or heavy physical exertion can end up in trouble. Laborers, we see a lot of laborers who work in hot environments, people who work in factories, farmers who work in silos, uh, construction workers, uh, pavement people who get all that extensive heat coming off the ground. And, uh, just the, and again, thinking about some of our other population, our older population, folks that are in restricted environments, maybe a non-air-conditioned building, a non-air-conditioned apartment, a mobile home, All are at heavy, heavy risk for heat stroke or, more importantly, heat exhaustion and actually EHS.
0: And you're in Florida, so are you seeing a lot of this happening in your geriatric population down there?
2: We actually have. Again, it's a strange time of year at times when people don't use their air conditioning and Florida is an odd environment because it can be just as hot in January as it can be in the summer. People don't acclimate. I mean, as you know, our snowboarders come down here from up north and right away jump into all their activities and we see patients that way. A lot of these folks are on diuretics. A lot of these folks are taking medications, which by definition are keeping them somewhat dry. So, see quite a bit of dehydration and as part of that dehydration, see a lot of older folks that come in with an unexplained, which is where Dr. Glazer's team is absolutely essential. Unexplained altered mental status, low-grade temperature, we all jump on sepsis right away. Then we suddenly see a clean urine and all the other things, and you start thinking what else would be giving them a high temperature, and you often forget that EHS is just another component of altered mental status.
0: So Dr. Glazer, thinking about these unexpected cases, do you have an interesting unexpected case of exertional heat stroke you'd like to share with us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, some time ago, I was working as a doc on an island in the Bahamas and we had a dive boat bring in one of their patrons and he had been diving all day and had become ill and had been below decks for a few hours, not feeling well. And he came in with a suspicion of actually having had a stroke. His mental status was altered. He was a man who was in his 60s with some hypertension. And so the captain thought that really a neurologic diagnosis was the most likely. Well, it turns out that despite the fact that he had spent his day in the water diving, he was in a restrictive wetsuit, was diving in water that was a lot warmer than what he was used to, and went immediately from that environment to a very hot shipboard environment. And when we measured his temperature, it turned out he was 105 degrees. So we cooled him down, he felt a lot better. And it was a good outcome for everybody involved. But again, not the first thing on the differential diagnosis for most people, but important to keep in mind, especially given the environmental pressures that he was under.
0: Dr. Guzzi, do you have any unusual cases of EHS that are presented to your critical care unit?
2: I do. We have a case of a very healthy, very robust 80-year-old gentleman who managed to get in nine holes of golf every morning. In fact, his goal was to play nine holes of golf every day until he died. He would pull his bag behind him, and he would off, he'd go and play golf, and he was out playing one of our moderately warm mornings, and his buddies started noticing he was confused. He almost stepped into one of their swings. He walked the long way up a fairway, so immediately they called 911. 911 got out there on the golf course, picked him up, brought him in, and as Dr. Glazer said so eloquently, obviously everybody thought neurologic injury, stroke, TIA, something else going on. So he comes in and everybody you know, rushes and he's confused, he's disoriented, his wife said he's not like this, he's usually on top of his game, his friends said this isn't him. So you know everybody got in there, he ends up with a CT scan which was negative and then it's all of a sudden it's a TIA diagnosis. And to show you it doesn't always follow a normal pathway, he was only about 103, 103.5 on arrival but very confused, very disoriented but perspiring profusely but a dry perspiration. And they asked us to come down to see him and see if there was anything else we thought was going on. Did we need to ship him somewhere for more definitive testing? And we looked at him, started looking at his labs. He was profoundly dehydrated. His CPKs were up around 20 to 25,000. And two to three days prior to admission, he had this progressive nausea with, as his wife said, multiple episodes of diarrhea and seemed to not be able to keep up with his volume. And it's just fascinating to me that this guy went out, did all this, and it just caught up to him. And yet in our mind, we thought, oh my goodness, this has to be just simply a septic issue. Does he have colitis? Does he have a UTI? None of which he had. Hydration, cooling him down, very, very close observation. And it was more interesting to me his neuro status because I think Dr. Glazier and I can probably both agree, we sometimes don't realize the neuro effect of heat. It took this gentleman who's a very intact, very robust man. It took him nearly five to six days to almost come back to where he could recognize his family members, converse normally, and required extensive physical therapy because of the extensive amount of heat damage he suffered to his muscles. So we often forget that it's not just the heat, it's the heat in the brain and the heat in the muscles and the recovery time afterwards. So again, I always think to myself, very healthy guy, wanted to play those nine holes, God bless him. But the reality was, it's what got him in trouble. So, Dr. Guzzi, with your years of experience, are there any hidden
0: pearls about exertional heat stroke that you've kind of tucked away in seeing these patients? Well,
2: I've had the very, very cool blessing of learning off of some very wise and then old physicians, both in the military and out. And one thing I learned, and I'm sure Dr. Glazer will say the same thing, it's all about recognition, observation, and appearance. That oftentimes we become so used to seeing the 80-year-old patient with a UTI the young patient with dehydration and not putting two and two together, we often think of heat stroke of what we once thought of as just sunstroke, warm, they'll be fine. But it's much more complicated than that. It's having that very high index of suspicion that if you can't put two and two together, that there's no sign of sepsis, that there's no sign of infection, that there's something else going on, your immediate suspicion should be possibly could this be a case of EHS that is going unrecognized And I think the big pearl here is we never have taken into account the significant neurologic effect of exertional heat stroke in patients. And Dr. Glazer, a two-part question just
0: to finish up, if you have any pearls. And the second part of the question is, you know, a lot of our young people, our children, our grandchildren are playing sports during warm weather. Are there some things as a sports doctor that you would really recommend that we make sure our coaches and our children are doing?
1: Absolutely. Well, Dr. Guzzi is exactly right in his observations, and I agree with him entirely. I think that rapid recognition, and in this case, rapid treatment, is especially important. One of the things that we've learned with exertional heat stroke is that the sooner we can get these athletes cooled down, the less likely they are to have long-term sequelae. Dr. Guzzi's comments about the brain cooking and how important that is are right on target. If an athlete is recognized rapidly, if they're cooled down rapidly, we can turn this condition, which in many cases can have a very high mortality and morbidity rate, we can turn it into an important save. One of the suggestions that I have really for the people who I talk to about exertional heat stroke is that if you're considering that diagnosis, don't delay in cooling. And even for the EMS crews that we work with, we encourage them to initiate cooling in the field. One of the pearls that I think parents can really take from this and athletes can really take from this is just to recognize the risk of exertional heat stroke and to respond quickly in terms of prevention. You know, we have a lot of opportunities to hydrate ourselves. We have opportunities to rest in the cool and we have opportunities really to moderate our level of exertion when we're under heat stress. I think we can plan ahead for races by allowing adequate time to acclimatize, and we can also use the buddy system when we're exerting in sometimes remote environments where it might be a little tougher to get medical help. We can really watch our buddies and make sure that if they're showing signs of fatigue, if they're showing signs of maybe getting a little loopy, don't let those things go. Really take those things seriously and try to make sure that we don't get to the point where an athlete is deeply impaired and sometimes out of reach of immediate medical care.
0: And with that, I'd like to thank Doctors James Glazer and Dr. Lou Guzzi for joining me to share cases on exertional heat stroke. It was great having you both on the program today.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much.
0: You've been listening to The Pulse of Emergency Medicine on ReachMD. The preceding program was sponsored by Eagle Pharmaceuticals. If you've missed any part of this discussion, visit reachmd.com emergencymed. Thank you for listening. Eagle Pharmaceuticals is a specialty pharmaceutical company that develops innovative injectable products. Eagle is primarily focused in the areas of critical care, orphan diseases, and oncology. With the goal of creating safer and more convenient treatments for patients and healthcare professionals through optimized formulations. Visit EagleUS.com for more information. Once again, that's EagleUS.com.